All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also, as I like to remind you each and every week, the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, you know, I've begun to uh, spend a considerable amount of time following Chen's top two or three stock picks at any given time. And I've started to write about them in Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks in a weekly column that I call Chen Lin Light. Chen Lin follows a large number of companies, but at any given time, he is focused like a laser on those that are most likely to rise dramatically and to do some things uh, and to do so very quickly. So, for example, he is currently focused on two biotech companies that show enormous progress in curing a form of muscular dystrophy, and the other is showing some real breakthrough potential in fighting cancer. Now, those two companies are Sarepta Therapeutics and Sorrento Therapeutics. You can learn more about those two companies in an interview I did with Chen, uh, and it is posted at jtaylormedia.com, jtaylormedia.com. Go there and click on the podcast page, and at the top of the page you will see, uh, and you can listen to the interview that I just did with Chen yesterday. You may also uh, wish to take advantage of my coverage of Chen's top picks in my newsletter because I will be focusing uh, on those top picks uh, on a weekly basis. Of course, uh, subscribing to Chen's letter directly is the way you can probably make the most money, uh, Because, uh, but you do need to be able to uh, be nimble and be near your computer and be able to make trades. Chen sends out things uh, all through the week. He sends out missives through the week to let people know uh, updates that will let you know what you should be doing with any given stock. And he, he does tend to focus on uh, on those that are really uh, poised for, for moves, and Chen has had, a, of course, a spectacular track record investing over the last uh, 10 plus years. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show and I uh, want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms and praises coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com questions of the number four um, Taylor at gmail.com and I would like to invite you also to follow me on Twitter. My handle there is jtaylormedia. I do want to thank Dynacor Gold Mines, uh, our sponsor for today, for making this show economically viable. And uh, again, thanks to each of you for listening. I've titled today's show, Do We Need World War III to Get Us Out of This Fed-Induced Depression? John Rubino, Gene Epstein, and Michael Oliver uh, will be with me. Michael will be with me in just a moment or two here. Uh, then following that, uh, after we're going to have uh, Gene Epstein, uh, we'll be here to talk about 
the upcoming New York City Junto meeting that is held this coming Thursday, the first Thursday of every month, the debate uh, that will be held there at that uh, forum, uh, will resolve the question as to whether or not Alexander Hamilton was a hero for the cause of liberty. Well, many of you probably have an opinion one way or the other about that. So if you're in the New York City area, come and listen to the debate. Uh, Gene will talk a little bit about that and tell you who, uh, who both uh, sides will be represented by. And at about half past the hour, my friend John Robino will be with me to give his views of the world markets and geopolitical uh, strife that's going on these days as the global economy continues to grow weaker with debt burdens weighing us down and with wars and rumors of wars brewing in the Middle East and potentially in Asia as well. There is a growing sense that a world war may be necessary to, quote, pull us out of a greater depression, end of quote. Well, that's not my view, but that is, a, it seems to be sort of a conventional view. So we're going to talk to maybe Gene a little bit about that as well as uh, cer- certainly uh, that's what we want to talk to John Rubino about. John will be with us at about 3.30, but right now, before we uh, go to our first commercial, I'm glad to have Michael Oliver with us at least for a few minutes. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be here, Jay. Always good to have you, and always good to tell our listeners that they should go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to learn more about Michael's excellent work, which I uh, hold in, in very high reverence. Um, you put out a missive this morning, Michael, uh, with some very interesting momentum charts showing a sideways move for the S&P over the past four years that looks eerily similar to the, to the momentum and structural chart that you showed uh, for the S&P 500 uh, from the years 2003-2007. Can you comment on that and, and what it may mean for us right now as we, as we begin to uh, look into 2016? Sure. Uh, the sideways, of course, is in the momentum readings. The price has gone up in the S&P, of course, for the last four or five years. But the uh, action since 2012-13, we have taken out the 2014 momentum low uh, this year. But we halted in the August sell-off when the S&P dropped down to the 1860s. It stopped at 12% over the current three-year moving average. Okay, so what I'm doing when I measure momentum is I'm measuring price in relation to the mean. Okay, And what happened was the low in 2012 and the low in 2013 were also 12% over the current three-year average at that time. So when you plot a momentum chart, you've got these three of the last four years have the same low. Okay, now that's called a structure. That's why my mm-hmm. report is called Momentum Structural Analysis. When you break a, a floor like that, it's like a price chart breaking through a massive floor. You don't see it on the price chart of the S&P because it's uptrending. Mm-hmm. But on momentum, it's flat. If you touch 10% over next year, and that's 20 trading days away, 10% over the new three-year average converts to a price of 2090. And we're mm-hmm. there. So mm-hmm. if you diddle-doddle around between now and December, or you close barely above there or barely below there, you touch 2090 next year, and I'm going to blow out four years of momentum lows on this annual momentum chart, and I suspect strongly you will get a downside move of consequence. This mm-hmm. is what happened at the close of 2007. We closed at 1468 price. That was fully 100 points above the low of the year. So it wasn't a threat to the price low of 2007, which occurred in August, coincidentally the same as our low. Um, but it closed such that when you open 2008, with the change in the three-year average, the momentum structure went through the floor. 
And we're, we're dancing around in ex- almost precisely the same manner, where your topping year, which let's call 2015 the topping year, was like 2007. And if you recall, 2007 was a real monkey cage. I mean, it was up, down, up, down, up, down, and, and just twisted all around, really sort of trendless after the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, when it opened in 2008, it just said, okay, that's it. And mm-hmm. the party started. So yeah. uh, we're positioned in much the same way. Right. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, Michael that if you if you have an up market for a number of years as we've had with the S and P five hundred with with the equity markets, and then you start this sideways momentum uh, basing pattern that normally the uh, it's like a like a coil that's springed up, and and normally uh, the resolution is in the opposite direction of whence it's come. So yeah, we're yeah, looking at I that see. for so that so the prediction in, on your part and on the part of many people that I follow, I suppose, is that we're going to have uh, some some very difficult days in the equity markets. But if that's true for equities, what about gold, which has had the opposite sort of uh, momentum? Mm-hmm. It's uh, most of the gold bear occurred in 2013. People need to remember that we we dropped to 1178, and we had been over 1900 in 2011. By the summer of 2013, you were 1178. That was the real crash in gold. Over the subsequent two years now, gold has shed another hundred or so dollars. Yeah. Put that in perspective. It took two years to shed uh, less than 10%. So really the decline in gold that people should have been screaming about was the collapse in 2013. Everything since then has been residue. This year's range in gold, I think, is about 20% from high to low. And we've been well up on the year, of course, at some point during the year. And, and, and then, of course, the, the recent lows at uh, 1060, uh, 1051. Uh, but the range, the volatility of the year is much like the S&P. It has contracted sharply compared to the prior three or four years. Uh, I, we're also seeing this in oil. Oil had a huge down year last year. And if you look just at this year, from January to the present, it's actually a fairly narrow range compared to mm-hmm. last year. Well, so we're seeing this after markets have had large moves in one direction, and then suddenly things dry up. That in itself is a sign of a balance change, mm-hmm. especially if there's age and maturity in the trend, the prior trend. In the case mm-hmm. of gold, there is age and maturity. It peaked in 2011. We're now 2015. That's a lot of maturity on the downside. Stock, mm-hmm. same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when you get congestion, like we're getting in the S&P, but if it were only after, let's say, a year or so of upside, that might just be congestion prior to another leg up. But mm-hmm. once you've spent four or five years, uh-uh, the odds are uh-huh. no. It's, it's not uh-huh. the top. Very interesting. Well, we'll certainly keep keep a watch of it, that's for sure. And uh, the idea that uh, that oil uh, could... Uh, could actually, I think you actually put a missive out this week that suggested we could actually see some fair, fair amount of strength in oil this uh, in 2016. Mm-hmm. I've got some trigger numbers that need to be uh, elected, gone through. Start at 43, next one's 45, and the last one's just above 49. But if we do, you're going into the mid-60s next year. Now, uh-huh. mid-60s is nothing historically for oil. I mean, it's still no. cheap. You know, we go back yeah. and look historically. Uh, but that would be a sizable percent move. And I call that really, a, a, I would call that, a, while it's a major move in percent terms from the recent low of 37.75, it's really just a big bear market rally. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you will have seen your low in oil at that point if you ever go to the mid-60s, but you're not going to trend through there. I don't know, you're not going back to 90 or 100 or anything like that anytime in the foreseeable future. But the first move off the mat could be more sizable than most people can, uh, currently conceive of in oil, especially when we're swimming in oil. You know, yeah. uh, there's, there's only one way it can go, and that's always down. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it would seem so. That's that's 
Uh, that's the way you always feel when you've been in a sustained move in one direction or another. It, it's going right. to always be that way. And, of course, yeah. we know that isn't true from history if we just look back a little bit. Well, certainly, 40 to $60, for, uh, let's say from the current 40 level to 60 would certainly do wonders for some of the uh, lagging uh, oil stocks that I follow. So, I mean, that would be something to look forward to. We'll, we'll certainly be watching your work very carefully, Michael, for that. And we, uh, unfortunately, are out of time. Always great to have you. Thank you so much. Again, for joining us. And again, uh, folks, it's it's, uh, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Catch up on Michael's work and uh, seriously consider subscribing to his letter. It's excellent. It's worth every penny. Thank you very much. Well, we do have to go to break. When we come back, uh, Gene Epstein will be with us to talk about uh, the upcoming New York City Junto. Very interesting debate. Alexander Hamilton was a hero for the cause of liberty. That is the resolution that will be uh, discussed. Uh, So Gene will be here to talk about that and some other issues. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Gene Epstein. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Tuesdays, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time for our special series on social selling. Learn how you can become the savvy leader who takes your company across the finish line as you look ahead to the next wave of business innovation. Social Selling with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Gene Epstein. We haven't had Gene with us for uh, several weeks uh, now, but it's really good to have him back. Uh, Gene uh, is an economist, and probably those of you who are familiar with him know him from uh, his work at Barron's. He writes the economic beat for Barron's, and he's also the book review editor for Barron's, and he also uh, heads up every other month, he heads up uh, a meeting at the New York City Junto 
Um, it's at 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, and Gene does an excellent job there of uh, pulling together discussions and, uh, and also overseeing debates, and I'm really looking forward to the one that he's going to be uh, overseeing this coming Thursday. Uh, it's an Oxford-style debate uh, uh, that uh, Michael Malice and Thomas Woods will be uh, the participants, uh, and the resolution is Alexander Hamilton was a hero for the cause of liberty. So, Gene, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be back. It's always good to have you. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about uh, this debate that's coming up. and Maybe you could just uh, sort of give our mm-hmm. listeners sure. a little bit of a preview. Sure. Well, uh, Tom, Tom Woods, who, uh, who, who runs a podcast that's uh, almost as good as your podcast, Jay, uh, daily podcast, he was visiting New York uh, a few months ago talking about uh, getting me on his podcast show, and uh-huh. then told me that um, he and Michael Malice, who is a libertarian, who's done a lot of appearances, done some interesting books, uh, are eager to debate each other on the subject of Alexander Hamilton, and uh, they wanted to serve this up ready-made. I didn't have to recruit uh, the, the one or the other as I normally do when it comes to a debate. They wanted to square off on the subject of Alexander Hamilton. I initially hesitated. You know, it's not as large an issue as the debates I've held in the past on American foreign policy. But uh, recognizing, for example, that uh, Alexander Hamilton has been in the news, he's going to share the $10 bill now with a photo of a woman as yet unnamed. Uh, we don't know who's going to be. He's going to stay on the $10 bill, but he's going to share it with a woman. And uh, and then on top of that, the very popular musical uh, that I saw and enjoyed, the the, the rock uh, rap musical based upon the Ron Chernow book, I figured that uh, why not? And Alexander Hamilton is a divisive figure for many libertarians. I mean, most libertarians do indeed uh, think uh, that uh, his policies were not exactly promoting liberty. But if a libertarian like Michael Malice wants to defend him, why not give the guy a chance? So that's, uh, that's how we ended up uh, debating Alexander Hamilton. I think it should be fun and informative uh, for anybody who attends. And again, uh, as I believe you indicated, it's an Oxford-style debate so that you get to participate. The resolution is, uh, again, Alexander Hamilton was a hero for the cause of liberty. So and you vote initially for the resolution against the resolution or undecided. And then you listen to the debate, and then you vote again. And uh, if uh, you, you vote, might change. And uh, whoever moves the needle in his favor wins the debate. And uh, that's what we uh, did before we debated anarchism, by the way, anarcho-capitalism last time with Richard Epstein versus Michael Humer. Michael Humer, who advocated anarchism, anarcho-capitalism, picked up a few percentage points. But uh, actually, Richard Epstein, uh, who could classical liberal, uh, picked up many more points and uh, thus won, technically won the debate that time. We'll see what happens this time. Well, it's very interesting. I guess, uh, in all honesty, those of us who go there should really search our souls and try to keep an open mind about things. But uh, I, I can tell you where my bias is, Gene, and I, I, I find it very difficult to believe I can be persuaded. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try to listen to the well, other yeah, side. No, then. indeed. So I, I can imagine. Uh, I, look, I read, I, I will confess, even though I'm, I'm going to be moderator, and uh, but I'm going to certainly be fair to both sides. I read uh, Hamilton's Curse 
by uh, Tom DiLorenzo, and it's difficult for me to imagine that you could argue that Hamilton was a hero for the cause of liberty. Uh, maybe you could claim, you know, he was a, a reformer in certain ways, that not everything he did was terrible, you know, but uh, Michael Malice will be uh, taking on a very heavy burden, and uh, I know he's a mischievous guy. Uh, he's He's been made most famous because he, he discovered he, uh, all of these documents that were the autobiography of Kim I'm not, I'm not going to pronounce it right, I guess. Kim Il-sung, the premier of North Korea, and he's published a book on that subject and on the horrors of North Korea. He was a Cato intern. He's got a lot of pedigree as a, as a uh, libertarian, and uh, he's a very imaginative uh, debater. So uh, at the very least, it should be a fun evening and possibly somewhat informative. Fun evening, and it's uh, and the price is good. The price is right. It's, exactly. it's free, so people should really, if you're in the New York City area, uh, please go try to attend. I think it will be a very, as Gene says, very entertaining and, and a fun paid evening. Paid for, paid for by the philanthropist and legendary trader Victor Niederhofer. Yeah, he's. It's it's price of, uh, price of admission is is worth it just to go there and and meet up with Victor I think sometimes he's he's meet quite a character Victor and he some of the yeah and look you and I are quite a character too and meet up with us too so, uh, so well I don't know that I, I don't I don't know that I could be anywhere nearly as colorful as Victor Niederhofer he is a, well, he is one of a kind and we're very you thankful and, you for and, you, and me, you and me both you and me both <laughs> yeah. take a back seat to Vic. All right, Gene, here's another issue, and I think it would be a good one sometime mm-hmm. for the uh, for New York City Junto, and that is mm-hmm. uh, resolved that uh, World War II got us out of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I, I'm quite sure I know how you stand on that, but there seems to be sort of a conventional uh, view of that among people that mm-hmm. are not necessarily economists, but you know, you just hear people say it all the time that, mm-hmm. oh, what got us out of the Great Depression was World War II. Oh, now yeah. we're oh, yeah. we're con- mm-hmm. we're continuing to have a um, uh, you know I, I think even you uh, you're one of the more optimistic people I have on my show Gene but <laughs> but even you would would agree that that we haven't seen the kind of growth globally and certainly in the United States that we've been used to in the past oh yeah uh, and and so you know there does seem to be more and more geopolitical tensions growing around the world and that maybe some of that might have to do with with uh, economic issues and uh, so on and so forth. I think all, economics almost always are somewhat involved in, in, in wars. But in any event, um, you know, what, what would you be your remedy now for, for getting the economy back on track? I don't believe that you would oh, wow. suggest a war is the right way to go. Oh, of course not. Uh, well, first of all, Jay, uh, let me uh, say I'm slightly taken aback. I, I love and admire you, uh, but uh, please don't do me a disservice and say that uh, I'm so optimistic. I insist on the point and keep insisting in my column on the point that uh, my so-called optimism uh, is only that the economy will probably muddle through, that it might do 3% uh-huh. growth. And uh, I keep trying to put that in context and uh, emphasize that this has been the slowest expansion uh, on record uh, under Obama. The next slowest expansion, by the way, was the previous one under George uh, W. Bush. So it's a bipartisan point, but still under Obama, it's even been worse, 2.2% as conventionally measured. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and and my so-called optimism is only that it's possible we may get 3%. 
Now, we've never, on every other expansion, even including uh, the George W. Bush expansion, we've had a couple of years of 4% growth. Mm-hmm. But uh, that does not seem to be in the cards for this expansion. And, and those percentage points, I know, I know as Austrian economists, we balk at these macro numbers, but still they, they have some value. You know, a percentage sure. point or two every year compounded amounts to a lot of wealth foregone. Yeah. This has been pretty pathetic. And uh, I believe uh, that um, it's traceable to the decline in the Economic Freedom Index since 2000. The Economic Freedom Index, uh, as, as compiled by the Fraser Institute uh, in conjunction with the Cato Institute, um, is for the U.S. Uh, increased fairly steadily from 1970 through 2000. Since 2000, it's been falling fairly steadily, and it's almost it's just about back to the levels of 1970. So, if you want to get the key to what's been going on and why the economic malaise, then I think that index, which is a measure of five components uh, of economic freedom, um, some of them proactive in the way that government can help the economy, as, for example, through the rule of law, um, through maintaining sound money to the extent that the government has control over money, uh, and uh, some of them uh, having to do with the way the government just can sort of get out of the way, as in the case of regulation or in the case of free trade. All of those metrics, uh, by and large, have declined uh, under Bush and under Obama. Um, I think that uh, you know the Sarbanes-Oxley rules uh, passed uh, in the the early aughts under Bush, um, the uh, the uh, Dodd Frank law regulations, all of the ways in which the Obama administration has been clamping down on the economy have been felt. The Consumer Protection Bureau, the Dodd Dodd Frank has caused has called for like five million words more of regulations that have been strangling entrepreneurship, and so all of those things uh, are the problem. Now, as for your question about uh, war uh, being uh, the same. Savior, a couple of things to say. Number one, I'm a student of Robert Higgs, whom Mm -hmm. you probably have heard of and possibly read, who's written uh, uh, extensively on the history of of the Great Depression and of World War II. And we know uh, that uh, nothing really can be said for the idea that World War II uh, uh, in any way uh, uh, helped the economy or got us out of the uh, Great Depression. Uh, one, of, one of the key points, very simple point that Robert Higgs makes, by the way, is that, uh, is that if you actually look at who was, act, who was working productively in the domestic economy in 1940, just before World War II started, and then in 41, 42, how many productive workers did we have in the domestic economy? And he finds, uh, not surprisingly, that there was a decline we had fewer people producing uh, d- domestic goods uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, by 1942 for the obvious reason that uh, so much of our manpower was in the army and, and then so much of our domestic industry, especially the auto industry, as you know, was no longer making cars. It was making uh, tanks uh, and, uh, and military trucks. It was making uh, implements of war. And so we obviously, the U.S. obviously, U.S. economy and the average person obviously got poorer 
from 1940 to 42, 43, um, and uh, and then uh, and then nothing, no 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 durables were produced. We obviously got impoverished from World War II. Now that's of course kind of a no-brainer. What else would happen if you're waging a major war with uh, with with you know with 20 million men and women um, uh, involved in the in producing uh, armaments or in uh, or in waging war? Of course that's going to happen, and that's indeed exactly what did happen. Now, the, the, the other joke about this is that, uh, as you may, may know, in 1943 and 44, when uh, we looked, we began to see that the war was going to end, the Keynesian economists were literally insisting that we not demobilize the army. Um, they, they were convinced that if we allowed uh, you know, over 10 million, 15, 11, 12 million men, I believe it is, men, uh, and, and women as well, uh, to uh, come home and be unleashed onto the job market, the unemployment rate would soar. And that was a common belief. Uh, and actually, it was at, uh, this, uh, and there was an economist at Business Week who believed we were going to have you know, a return to 20% unemployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. the Keynesians were predicting that. But, what, uh, but it didn't happen. And by and large, it did now. Some of them, some of them didn't go into the labor market. It's true. Some of them took advantage of the GI Bill and went to college. But by and large, there was a huge expansion in the labor force at the end of World War II, uh, and the predicted soaring double-digit unemployment rate did not occur. And by and large, it did not occur because the labor markets sorted themselves out because the labor markets cleared. There was a there was a lot of supply uh, looking for work and. Uh, and the, and, uh, and the price was right. The, 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 the new workers were not insisting on a particular wage, so we lifted wage and price controls. So they got paid more or less what they could get paid, and, and, the, and the markets cleared. But we really yeah. did, by the way, create the worst Keynesian disaster after World War II ended, because as you know, it's not just that we, infl- that we suddenly let loose 10 million uh, job seekers onto the labor market. Um, and we also uh, had a major fiscal contraction. Uh, yeah. we, uh, we did indeed, you know, suddenly the, the defense establishments collapsed. And right. uh, there too, the Keynesians, if the Keynesians were right, then World War II should have brought a major economic depression, which indeed they were already predicting, and it didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. So they got foiled on both ends. Well, you wonder, Gene, you know, yeah. now, uh, to what extent we would allow the workers to come back and get what the market would bear, or we'd force, uh, if we wouldn't, uh, the politicians wouldn't try to force people to pay more than what the uh, market would bear. So, you know, yeah. I wonder, you know, right now, what things would be like if we reduced our military, uh, the, the number mm-hmm. of men and women in our military, I don't, I don't know. I have no doubt, as you do, I'm sure, I uh, have no doubt that, uh, that if the free markets were allowed to operate, they would operate very well. But we're mm-hmm. not allowing them to to such a great extent. Gene, you have yeah. a lot of great ideas. There's also mm-hmm. some ideas about taxes we don't have time to talk to you about. Maybe mm-hmm. sometime in the near term, you had some very interesting ideas that you passed along to me. Maybe, maybe sometime very soon, or I would say that people should really read Gene's column. Uh, mm-hmm. it, in Barron's every week because he always comes through with some great ideas uh, and some good statistics uh, on, on what is really happening in the economy as opposed to what we might be told is happening. So thank mm-hmm. you so much, Gene, for being sure. with us. I look forward to seeing you on Thursday mm-hmm. uh, at the uh, General Society Library at the New York City June Show, 20 West 44th Street. The time, Gene, when are we, when are yeah, we starting seven, with yeah, that? Seven, 7.30. 7.30, okay. Yeah. Very good. All right. Great. See you there, Gene. Thanks thank you so much. Bye. Folks, uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back with John Rubino. 
uh, and we're going to address, uh, we're going to ask John to talk to us about, do we need World War III to get us out of this Fed-created depression? So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning a Hard Time into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again John Rubino. I imagine most everybody out there knows who John Rubino is. He's been on this show a number of times, and he's certainly, uh, for anybody that's out there looking uh, at the at the markets uh, from a free market perspective, you would know the name John Rubino. He, has, um, he runs the popular website, dollarcollapse.com, and I guess that's the place people should go to to get in really get in touch with what all John is doing. But he's also been involved with uh, writing a number of books. He co-authored with uh, James Turk, our friend James, uh, the uh, gold money's uh, James Turk, which is now a bit gold, or it is still gold money, but anyway, uh, it is combined now with bit gold. Um, the Money Bubble was the name of a book, What to Do Before It Pops. Uh, and another author, he also authored a book called Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom, uh, The Collapse of the Dollar, uh, was also with James Turk, How to Profit from the Coming Real Estate Bust. I'm wondering if there's another one coming up. We might ask him. Uh, and Main Street, not Wall Street. Um, so John has had a, a, an extensive background in the financial markets. He worked on Wall Street for a while as an MBA from New York University years, a few years back. And... Uh, during the 1990s, he was a featured columnist uh, with TheStreet.com and a frequent contributor 
to individual investor, online investor, and consumer digest, among many other publications. So he currently also writes for CFA Magazine. Thanks, John, for joining me today. It's good to have you again. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to talk to you. Uh, we've titled our show today, Do We Need World War III to Get Us Out of This, this Fed-Created Depression? So, you know, the mainstream media always presents an optimistic picture of the, the global economy. I mean, there's no need to go to war for that reason, according to the mainstream. I mean, we have many other reasons. We've got an evil guy named Putin. We have an evil dictator in North Korea. We have bad people, uh, some bad people, at least bad now, and we might redefine them as good in the future or vice versa in the Middle East. We have uh, China, which is uh, supposed to be an ominous threat to us here in the United States, all of these things. But there's no reason that we would go to war because our economy is actually pretty good, is what we're told when I turn on CNBC and Bloomberg and so forth. But let's talk about the U.S. economy for a moment. John, how, how, would, you, how would you characterize it? Well, we've, we've got a little bit of recovery going on here, at least in terms of top-line numbers. But the, the important thing to understand is that um, nothing exists just in and of itself. Um, whatever you've got, you have to look at what you had to pay to get it, right, before you know whether you've done well. And in the U.S., we borrowed absolutely insane amounts of money over the last six or seven years to hold what would have been a global depression at bay. And so, yeah, we've, we've got a few more new jobs in the U.S. now than we used to, and GDP is growing. You know, it's kind of clawing along at uh, 1% or 2% a year, which is a positive number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had to borrow so much to get this that we actually dug ourselves into an even deeper hole. Uh, for instance, a lot of the jobs that have been created in the last few years have been in the service sector. That is, bartenders and waiters. Relatively few have been created in manufacturing, you know, good, good paying, unionized, possibly factory jobs. And we have had to borrow about 10 times the annual salary of these bartenders that we've been hiring in order to create each one of those new jobs. Mm-hmm. So we, we didn't end up doing ourselves any favor by, um, by pursuing the policies that we pursued. For instance, the, the U.S. is kind of like um, a family. Let, let's say, Jay, you lose your job. Yeah. And, uh, and you and Teresa, instead of uh, cutting back, decide to maintain your lavish New York City lifestyle by putting everything on credit cards. Well, everything looks normal for a while. It looks like you're basically okay because you, you've got all the same stuff. You're doing the yeah. same things. But, but that credit card debt is building up year after year after year. And at some point, everything's going to change because um, one of those cards will refuse to extend you more credit or you'll default on something or other and then the repo man will come and take everything away. Well, that, that's the U.S. right now. We're, we're extending and pretending by borrowing huge amounts of money to maintain a lifestyle that we can't maintain from our own productive capacity. And at some point, that blows up on us. And it's mm-hmm. not, not clear when. might be next year. might be five years from now. But the repo man is coming because we can't pay our debts. And we're actually in better shape than a lot of the rest of the world. You know, if you look at Japan or Europe or China right now, um, you have to say that they are closer to the edge of the cliff than we are in a lot of ways. So we we have a a global depression that will probably, by historians, be dated from around 2000 when the tech stock bubble burst. 
mm-hmm. that we've been keeping at bay by borrowing more and more money year after year. Um, but at some point, we'll lose the ability to continue to borrow money on these terms, and then everything will fall apart. And then we'll say, oh, yeah, you know, may- maybe we should have done something different after the tech stock bubble. But by then, it'll be way too late. Uh, yeah. Would so. it be way too late? Uh, so it's a lackluster economy that is being, uh, let's say, oxygen is being breathed into it through debt, and as you point out, it's taking more and more debt to create those sort of jobs that aren't really wealth-creating jobs; they're service jobs. And um, but what is it? Tra- is it translating yet, John, into the earnings of companies? That companies, to a great extent, have been able to keep their per share earnings up by buying back stock, by going out and and they're borrowing money at low prices to buy the stock and uh, buy back their stock. And, of course, uh, bookkeeping gimmicks and also by cutting costs. But as you say, you know, to what extent top-line revenues have not been doing very well, from what I understand. Uh, you know, it's a lackluster economy, but you wouldn't know it from the stock market, basically, uh, for the most part. Although, as Michael Oliver pointed out earlier, the equity market isn't all that great, really, if you go back and look at it for the last few years. But you have a sense that, you know, I mean, if you if you listen to the mainstream media, you have the sense that things are, oh, they're okay. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be right there. We're going to do very well. Just keep buying stocks. What is your view of the equity market now? Well, well, the, the stock market has been inflated by all the money that we're pumping into the banking system. Um, when, when the Federal Reserve creates new dollars, they, they hand it to the big banks. The big banks give it to their preferred customers who are basically you know, the rich guys out there who already have most of the stuff that they need. So they park that money in treasury bonds and, and blue chip equities and, and bid up the prices of financial assets. Um, and at the same time, as you said, corporations have been uh, doing financial engineering in order to make their earnings look much better than they actually are. Uh, one of the things they've been doing is firing their U.S.-based workers and transferring a lot of that work to China where it's much cheaper and getting a tax break for the related costs for this process. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they borrow money for next to nothing, and then they turn around and buy back their outstanding stock, which pushes up the price of that stock and makes the earnings per share a little higher, and which not incidentally increases the year-end bonus for most of the executives yeah. involved in running the company. Right. But this, a lot of this stuff is... Um, is uh, it, it has a limited time frame in which it can work. You know, you can only borrow so much money to buy back your stock before you've bought back all your stock and, and done a, a leverage buyout, right? So that, mm-hmm. that can't go on forever. And um, if you don't invest in new plant and equipment, which U.S. companies are, are not to the extent that they should be, then your company gets older and less efficient and less profitable in the long run. So a lot of what's happening now is... Um, um, basically, these companies are being looted by their current managements, and uh, they're leaving a mess for their successors. So, yeah, that, that's going to reflect on the stock market in the long run, or in the inter- intermediate term, um, in lower earnings, and therefore probably lower share prices out there somewhere. But leaning against that trend is all the new money coming in from the world's central banks, mm-hmm. and it has to go somewhere. So it's possible that even as the the world's equity markets deteriorate in terms of quality of earnings and and, uh, total earnings and virtually everything else that you would normally look at as a valuation measure for equities, that they will continue to go up just because there's money pouring out of these central banks. So what's really happening is we're devaluing our currencies 
versus corporations. In other words, uh, the, the dollar gets less valuable, therefore General Motors stock goes up, but it's really the dollar going down um, and the, the stock is not necessarily becoming more valuable in real terms. So at some point, that also blows up. And again, there's no way to know when, but the, you're seeing signs of that trend rolling over. Corporations are buying back a little less stock than they used to. They're, uh, um, they're borrowing a little bit less money. You know, the trend is starting to inflect a bit. And more importantly, the, uh, the stocks of some of the biggest share repurchasers are starting to underperform the market now. Mm. So that means that that trend might finally have peaked and might be rolling over. Mm-hmm. Well, we're certainly seeing a lot of internals in the markets and uh, divergencies. I would say uh, David Stockman is talking recently about how just a handful of companies uh, are tech companies primarily that are, that are holding up the NASDAQ and so forth. So one wonders how long this can go on. But, you know, John, you, you mentioned that it's, it's the rich people, it's the one percenters, or the one-tenth of one percenters that are really, really sort of skimming everything off the top, it seems. And the ma- vast majority of Americans, I mean, uh, more on food stamps, more on, you know, living hand-to-mouth, more, I forget, I saw a number recently about the how many Americans have less than $1,000 saved up and, and probably a lot of debt on top of that to, to boot. So you, you have to wonder, at some point, it starts to wear on the body politic internally, and if we look around the world internationally as well, I believe very firmly, and, and I think that you are in agreement with this, that the petrodollar is a very important part of this whole story, that we need to have, uh, the dollar needs to have a bid under it, and part of that bid, as Henry Kissinger made sure would happen after Nixon took us off the gold standard, was to, was to have Saudi Arabia and the oil countries purchasing their oil Uh, using dollars to purchase the oil. Now, there are people in the world that, there are countries in the world, namely Russia and China and others that are not so keen about using dollars and they're starting to compete against that. Um, There's this notion, we talked to Gene Epstein about it just a moment ago, the, the notion that we got ourselves out of World War II with a war. With the global economy showing more weakness and, you know, and, and just, just not doing well. Do you think that might heighten the chance of some very serious conflict? And we notice that there are, there does seem to be growing geopolitical conflict between ourselves and Russia and China and places like that. Well, okay, there are two major parts to that question, Jay. And the first is, does a big war do good things economically? And that's an unequivocal no. <laughs> you know, there's no, there is no positive aspect to war from an economic standpoint. And uh, the way you get out of a depression is you let the debt be liquidated that got you into the depression in the first place. And then when enough debt has been liquidated and assets are cheap enough, the people who have maintained capital through this process come in, buy up a lot of cheap assets, put them to work, and the economy starts growing again in a sustainable way. Um, That's just the way the business cycle works. And there's no getting around that. In a capitalist economy, you have the occasional boom, the occasional bust, and if you let the bust liquidate enough of the malinvestment and bad debt, um, you start growing again. And overall, over time, you end up growing strongly, as strongly as it's possible to grow, and creating as much wealth as it's possible to create without government intervention. Uh, the, the second part of the, uh, the question is, are, are, are we behaving the way we're behaving 
geopolitically now because we're worried about our domestic economy. And that is the way the world works. When, uh, when a country is badly run and its people are becoming restive, governments frequently look abroad for some kind of an enemy to distract their people with. You know, and, mm-hmm. and so you're seeing the whole world do that now. China is is um, making trouble completely unnecessarily in the South China Sea, and and uh, the Middle East is on fire right now. And Russia and the U.S. are kind of bombing each other's surrogates. You know, we're yeah. we're in grave danger of making a mistake over there, where one of us accidentally shoots down one of the other's planes, just like Turkey just did with uh, the Russian plane. And we still don't know the, the full story behind that. But uh, it, it is kind of heating up around the world. And a, a, probably a big part of that is that um, domestically, all of these countries are so precarious right now. You know, we've got serious domestic problems, impending financial crises pretty much everywhere you look. And so historically, that leads to geopolitical tensions. So it shouldn't be a surprise that this is happening, but it should be terrifying. You know, uh, just lately, some stories have been coming out um, about the new superweapons that are being developed. Uh, Russia has, so they say, uh, a super torpedo that can detonate a nuclear warhead off the coast of uh, an enemy country and cause a radioactive tsunami <laughs> that wipes out a city and then irradiates the surrounding ground for decades afterwards. Um, and they've got some kind of a, um, a ray gun, a super jammer that shuts down all electronic communication um, in the direction that they point it. So you, it would stop, for instance, cruise missiles from coming in against them. But it would also, I think, take down commercial airliners and uh, blind satellites and, and do all kinds of things that, uh, that would be terrifying for an opposing military or an opposing country in general. Um, and the U.S. now is developing... Um, autonomous submarines, cheap little drone-like subs that they're going to just send out into the ocean to do whatever, you know, to track other countries' subs and presumably, eventually, it will arm them and have them be able to attack other countries' subs and ships. So now we're going to have a, an ocean, if this works out, that'll be like the skies over Afghanistan or something where you never know if something is just going to attack you out of the blue. So... Uh, and that's just the uh, the three things that have been announced lately. Presumably, they're working on some other really terrifying super weapons. And uh, the fact that they're being announced now is a form of uh, you know mutually assured destruction, where they're saying you know, whoever is announcing this is saying, "Look, don't attack us, don't mess with us, because we can do things to you that uh, that maybe you didn't realize we could do." Well, here and uh, mm-hmm. and so this is another part of the conflict that's happening on a lot of different levels now between the U.S. and China and Russia and uh, to an extent Europe and of course the Middle East um, where everybody's kind of jockeying for position now and it's obviously not clear how all this shakes out and the worst case scenario for what we're starting right now is pretty horrendous so hopefully we don't ever get to that point but this is the kind of thing that leads to crazy stuff you know this feels a lot like the beginning of World War One. Where, where you had people doing things that uh, in and of themselves uh, aren't globally significant, but that lead to things that can be globally significant. And so hopefully we're not doing anything like the, uh, the Austrians declaring war on Serbia because a Serbian assassinated an Austrian archduke, and that precipitating World War I. You know, we're, we're 
on the verge of doing things like that, for instance, in the Middle East. And hopefully we don't take the next set of steps that lead us further down that path. Yeah. Well, certainly the down the downing of the Russian airliner, um, by, supposedly by ISIS, um, and also, of course, the downing of the of of the Russian uh, jet, fighter jet the other day by Turkey, certainly is uh, has got people really worried. I think rightfully worried. But you know, I hear, John, uh, you listen to the Republican debates, you hear nothing but. Um, but anger about a president who hasn't been tough enough, and they're blaming Obama <laughs> for all of the problems that we have. I mean, the, the neocons think that the reason we're having all these wars is because we have a, a Neville Chamberlain in our in our White House. You know, uh, that that we we need to be tough, and we let have to let them know. One of the questions and concerns that I have, John, is that the notion, and we hear some of the neocons almost crying for World War Three. They're almost saying, "Bring it on." Uh, we can do it. We're greater than you. We have everything we need. We just, we just, we just had a limp-wristed president in the White House. Now all we need is some tough guy in there that will really, that will really set things right and let people know that America is still in charge of the world. And um, but I'm wondering, do you think that these new weapons that are being created are they likely to deter, or they could they actually get people to think oh, now we have a way that we can win this thing, and and launch the first strike. Hopefully they're a deterrent, but who knows what these guys are thinking. I mean, that, that it's reached this point yeah. uh, kind of implies that, um, that, that you've got a lot of overconfident people out there or people who are so terrified of their domestic situation that they're willing to risk a big war to distract their people. Um, but, you know, when you've got this many moving parts in a situation, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen next. And yeah, you're right. In the U.S., we've got, got some bloodthirsty chicken hawks out there who, uh, who would love to, um, to flat out declare war on one or two other countries just because they, they believe we can get away with it. But that's really, um, that's an artifact of a historical accident, really. After World War II, we were, because the, the war had happened in a different place. We were relatively unscathed and we ended up being the most powerful country in the world. And we've parlayed that into a global military empire using the world's reserve currency, which we basically borrowed against to the point that we're functionally bankrupt. But leaving that aside, um, we still think with just 5% of the world's population that we have um, preordained right to dominate the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that gets empires in trouble. You know, yeah. When you overreach and you think that because you've won your last few battles, you're untouchable. And uh, because you've been able to borrow as much money as you wanted up until this point, you can borrow as much money as you want forever yeah. and finance whatever adventure you feel like financing. And that historically tends to turn out not to be true. Yeah. You know, the Roman John, Empire. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, to go on. We're just about out of time. I, I have to ask you, though, John, you know, we've been talking about these potential dangers, the economic dangers as well as outright war. But you make a good point, and uh, we were talking earlier today, that it's at times like these, it's if you can see the future or see, sort of see what's coming and prepare for it, you can actually come out. Uh, potentially you can come out ahead and be better off for it. Uh, give us a, a little optimism here, John. Can you give us some idea of what we should be doing to help us uh, prepare for, for the difficulties that might lie ahead? 
Sure, Jay. There, there are two reasons for optimism. One is that, um, you know, crisis equals opportunity, as the old saying goes. So the, the, the things that are going to happen inevitably from all this debt we've taken on are fairly predictable in the broad sense. And uh, one of the things that is going to happen is massive currency devaluation around the world. So you can set yourself up to make a lot of money from that process. And one way to do that is to own a lot of precious metals because they are the old forms of money that governments can't create in infinite quantities and that tend to go up versus the national currencies that are being devalued. So that's one thing. There are many, many others. And then looking further out, uh, when we hit bottom and when the old way of doing things has been discredited, uh, and we, we hopefully create a more sustainable system going forward, there are going to be some amazing technologies out there, starting with solar power and, and moving on through biotech mm-hmm. and artificial intelligence and lots of other things that are, that are going to be the growth industries of the next century. And then we can take our precious metals profits, roll them into solar power and biotech stocks and make another fortune. So it's possible starting yeah. now to have All a really right. good 10 years. All right, John. I think you, you've given us some good things to think about. Uh, I want to thank you very much. We are out of time, unfortunately. We could go on forever with you. Thank you so much for being with us. So we will actually address some of those issues, John, next week when we talk to Chris Martinson and, and Adam Taggart on this mm-hmm. show uh, about their book, Prosper. They have a lot of great ideas, not just financial capital, but all kinds of other social capital and things that you can do to prepare for difficult times. So, But I uh, would love to have you join us sometime because I know you have a lot of great ideas, too. But thank you so much for being with us, John. Always great to have you. Uh, so, folks, that is all the time we have today. But as I said, Adam Taggart and Chris Martinson will be with us next week on this show. Um, and uh, so I hope that you'll join me. do want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. <laughs> 